Hello and welcome to A Week in Politics. I'm Harvey, your host, and I'm joined as usual by Albert Novoselis. And what an episode we have for you today. We have the one and only Tom Harwood on the podcast, uh, a senior reporter at Guido Fawkes, also uh, seen reporting in The Telegraph and on BBC Question Time. Tom, it is an absolute honour to have you on the podcast this week. I hope you're doing okay. Yeah, great to be here. What a fun way to spend an evening. Yes. Um, well, I mean, what a fun way to spend talking about politics and ripping into uh, the Labour Party and also the Conservative government on this podcast. So on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, the A-level results U-turn, which has really dominated the news this week. Um, the response from the government, but also from the opposition as well. We're going to pick Tom's brain on that and see what he thinks of that before. We're going to talk to Tom about uh, the Conservative Party in general, uh, Brexit. We're going to really get into uh, details with that before we at the end, we play a return of fight night and we're going to see uh, who wins in celebrity versus politician matchups so uh, first of all we're going to get in dive straight in with the a-level results u-turn obviously this week there's been a bit of a um a, a bit of a mess with the a-levels from the government uh with now there's going to be off teacher grades rather than the uni- the government algorithm uh, tom what do you make of this It's a mess from every angle. I don't understand why people are sort of cheering the U-turn this week as if it was any better than the system that preceded it. Really, what we've ended up now with a system that's just as discriminatory as the one before, but also inflationary with regard to grades. So there are too many uh, students now off to university compared to the university places that there are. It's a total mess. And this year has just been so abandoned by all parties in all corners of this country. And they're going to face uh, really tricky employment prospects in the future because how on earth are you going to be able to uh, distinguish between this generation in the same way that you've done with previous years so really this has been a massive dropping of the ball from every government and it's incredible that there was no sort of foresight there was no ability to see that hang on actually not sitting exams might pose some pretty significant problems later down the line mm. Albert what do you what do you make yeah of this? I completely agree because I just don't, I just yeah, well, I say I agree. I, I, can't, I can't understand how. I know, obviously, this is completely, you know, unexpected circumstances, but the government has still had months to be able to come up with something. And I think that, well, both the government and um, like Ofqual and the other um, organisations that have been responsible for this surely could have come up with, could have foreseen all the problems that this is going to face further down the line. It's just a complete mess. And I really feel for the people who've been affected by it. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I agree that, that it is a mess. I, th- I think, although I, the problem that I have is that I think that it was slightly better what they've done after the U-turn. I agree that it's certainly not perfect, but I think that the idea that it's so much more difficult for them now because of the inflated grades, it's not entirely the case. I mean, for example, you know, to some extent, that's, there is a bit of precedent for it in that. For, for example, myself, Albert and Harvey all come from the academic year in which university applications were down by 4%, meaning that the universities that our year could go to were generally actually much higher than pretty much any other year. Like, that does happen. Um, so I'm not necessarily that worried about that. I just think that the level of just how unfair it was beforehand, where you had people who just because they went to schools in disadvantaged areas with much like weaker histories of academic performance, meaning that their grades were limited, I think that was fundamentally much more unfair than the predicted grade system, which is still obviously very flawed, but I think that it is quite a lot better and probably fairer, um, especially when you're looking at like how it impacts students from different backgrounds. I think in general, that's a bit of a generalisation because we saw all of those graphs, really, the gap between um, those from lower, um, those from 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 uh, worse off backgrounds as opposed to those um, from better off backgrounds. Um, And that gap actually was a lot smaller in England than it had been in Scotland with the moderated grades, the horrible algorithm that I totally agree was totally inadequate. But actually compared to what it is now, I think it's a massive generalisation to say that this disproportionately um, harmed people from uh, less well-off backgrounds because ultimately, actually the gap was to some degree smaller and, and not that far off in the round compared to uh, the year before. 
So I'm, I'm not sure that that's so true. And actually, if we look at things like, it's not just private schools that, that, that that's become the meme that were almost pretend, like it seems that so many people on Twitter have said that private schools were just sort of sailing through this. That's not the case. Actually, lots weren't in terms of smaller sizes. That happens in lots of state schools as well. It happens in special schools. It happens particularly with regard to children with special needs. There's lots of things that um, will now be wiped out from that algorithm that are worse on this side. And I think it's right to remember what the Labour Party was saying um, about this time last year when they started a campaign to do away with teacher predictions because, um, because the biases in that system are actually really poor when it comes to racial equality, which is actually something that quite surprised me when I was reading into this. But it turns out that, um, that, that white kids under teacher assessment do so much better than black kids. And there's lots of other um, biases that come into it when you're dealing with people picking people rather than um, algorithms dealing with numbers. Uh, ultimately, both decisions are bad there isn't anything to be cheering about I think at this time and I think it's wrong for everyone to be suggesting that this is all now something that's being fixed and that's fine because ultimately the only solution the only solution that is in any way equitable is having actual exams and it is remarkable that everyone was so frightened of having what in effect is the most COVID secure activity I could possibly imagine. Children who don't pass the virus on as much as adults sitting in space out desks in massive gymnasiums keeping their mouths shut while they're writing. I mean what, what is more COVID secure than an A-level exam? I can't really think of anything. No I mean Tom you've absolutely hit that on the head there for me. It's it's ridiculous. It's an absolute mess. I mean, the fact that there's going to be a generation now or a year of students who haven't sat any exam at all, but yet are coming out with some A-levels, not only puts them at a disadvantage when they'll go for jobs in the future, as being uh, titled the COVID year, um, and also uh, against us as well, that we've that people are going to universities without actually having to put uh, any word on an exam paper. And and you're right, there's, there's very little evidence suggests that um, children pass it on as much as adults. Uh, and exams are COVID, COVID safe. Uh, you wouldn't pass it on as easily. Uh, you could have limited people in each exam hall. You could have multiple exam halls from, for the same exam. It's ridiculous how the government have gone about this. Uh, I'll, I'll just a, a quick question on that. Um, what do you think this implication will have on the future of this year, the COVID year of students? Will, will, do you think this will uh, have a, a damaging effect on their future uh, job applications? I think it will have had a bad impact anyway. I mean, the kids have, lit, have missed six months of school. That's going to have a huge developmental impact, not just for the exam years and the leaving years, but actually particularly for the early years where school is such an important equaliser for cognitive development, for everything around um, how, how children grow up um, in society. So this is, I, I mean, it's, there's a reason why so many people have been banging on for so long about getting children back to school. It's a really important social justice issue and one that I'm amazed actually that so many parts of the left in this country have not been keen to do because they've been so beholden to the teaching unions, which bizarrely don't want to be teaching. They, they seem to be wanting to keep schools closed and that's just so anathema to how we're going to build a, a society where there's less inequality which I would have thought that's what they're all about. So yeah, there's going to be enormous consequences. And when it comes to children going to university this year, I don't know how they're all going to fit. The housing problem is, is bad enough for students as it is. But given that you're now going to have massive excesses of, um, of, of students crammed into small university towns and cities, I mean, the, the housing crisis alone, added to the how they're going to deal with tutorials and everything, it's going to be an absolute nightmare. This just hasn't been thought through. And it's deeply, deeply worrying. Mm. Uh, I do. I, I completely agree on that point about universities. Actually, I feel like universities are something that's been ignored quite a bit from um, from the government and just precautions in general. Because I've spoken to people who are hoping, you know, they've got offers. They're going to go to university in September, and the only real guidance they've had or emails from universities is just, you know, we're good, we're doing everything we can to make it safe for you. But there's been no actual, you know, evidence of what that's going to be because essentially universities are in a difficult place for organizing any sort of social activities for students but I know we've been to university you know like a large part of the university life is the social life so students are going to want to have this experience regardless and I think it's fair enough that they should expect some sort of social life when they pay nine thousand odd pound a year for it um 
So I think certainly to answer the question about whether people have been disadvantaged, I think yes, in the short term, their university experience would be disadvantaged. In the long term, it's difficult to say really because, um, you know, it's difficult to picture how the job market will be. So it may not be, you know, it may not be such a problem in the future, but, you know, who knows essentially. You see, I think that personally, I feel a lot less concerned about um, the long term in some sense. I mean, firstly, like, because I think the schools closed around March time, didn't they? And usually the exams are done by June. And also most people have to study leave in May. So it's only really like two months or so of teaching. It did. I mean, the problem with that is that it made the exams far less viable because obviously it meant that they'd not have any practice or teaching and that, all of that kind of thing in the lockdown as well. But I don't think that you can really say that that's going to be a huge impact on their um, long-term future. Like I think that when an employer is faced with an individual who potentially has a degree, as many of them will, or an apprenticeship or further job experience or whatever, I don't think that they'll necessarily be looking at that. I think that there is a fair point to be made about the universities, but even with that, I think that, and it's, it's certainly an issue that there's going to be less of the social side for the students, but I think that ultimately, because of the fact that so much study at university is independent, um, and, you know, the lectures are sometimes delivered online anyway, I know a lot of universities where it's videoed and your readings and that kind of thing, I feel a lot less concerned about that, and I think that you know, the, the social side is an issue, but they seem to have some reasonable ways around that. I think they were saying they were going to put people in housing with people on their course, so it's a little bit easier in terms of who they'll be around and that kind of thing. Um, but ultimately, when you've got such a crisis as coronavirus is, I, ca I can understand the government, you know, deprioritizing like the social life of students, even though it is important and, you know, it is going to be worse, but they still will have some. Mm. Um, Tom, I just what does this crisis that the uh, the government have put on themselves what do you think it highlights about this current conservative government with the the amount of u-turns they're currently taking at the moment I, th I think it is surprising to see a government that has an 80 seat majority um be so willing to bend to media pressure i think this is the seventh u-turn depending on what exactly you count as a u-turn and i know there's some discussion i think the government would would very strongly disavow the idea that uh, not looking down and then looking down was a U-turn but I think there's some evidence to suggest that it was even though it was on the basis of sage advice. Um, the idea that this government is so willing to sort of bend to the slightest bit of media pressure and not sort of tough it out in the way that I think successful previous governments has is a bit of a worrying thing, especially considering we're early term. I mean, I can understand why a government would be more conscious about what the media is saying in the last six or 12 months before a general election, but this is so far out. It seems like everyone in government right now has forgotten just how comfortably far behind some of the most successful governments in this country's history have been from their opposition in midterm. I mean, Michael Foote led Margaret Thatcher by at one point double digits. Uh, Ed Miliband led David Cameron. I think it, all of the all of the governments that actually do something need to be willing to be unpopular because ultimately the only way you're going to get long-term gain um, that's, that's meaningful is not by taking the really easy decisions it's by taking the hard ones that yes will make you unpopular in the short term but will hopefully start reaping dividends by the end of your term in office uh yeah i think one thing that's been interesting talking about the government is the, with this is about who pays the price for sort of this perceived fiasco. I'd be interested to see what uh, you guys think about this, but is it Gavin Williams who should go? Should he be reshuffled or, you know, uh, is, there, is there other, other people uh, more in the kind of come up with this algorithm who's more of a problem? If Gavin Williamson should go, then so should uh, Mr Sweeney north of the border, so should whoever the Lib Dem is in the Welsh Government, so should the Education Secretary in Northern Ireland. They all walked into this um, with months and months of preparation and they all stumbled. Every single government, every single, it's actually quite rare that you have a situation whereby the Lib Dems, the Labour Party, the SNP, Sinn Féin, the DUP and the Tories have all had an utter disaster, but they've all done exactly the same thing. So so they should probably all resign. Yeah, no, I see. That's the thing. The um, each each uh, nation in the union has done the same mistake, you know. And I've I've lived in Wales for three years, 
um, well, it's going to be four years very soon. And the I've, I take a lot of uh, time uh, working for the Conservatives in, in Wales and you know, fighting uh, for seats in the Welsh Assembly. And Mark Drakeford over there has done an absolute shambles. He's come out and said, and it's, it's been documented that only, they only changed uh, their stance on teachers giving teacher grades uh, because England were doing it uh, in, before them. So they did it a couple of hours before. And it's just an absolute sham over there. And to say that, you know, Gavin Williamson should resign means that they all have to go. I think it would be another U-turn if Gavin Williamson was to resign. It'll be giving into mainstream media pressure, which is what the government need to not do. You know, Tom uh, Gavin Williamson's made and one mistake on here. It's a big mistake, but it's not. Uh, it's for me. He needs to stay because I do honestly think I've met him multiple times. I think he is honestly a a, a good Secretary of State. I think he'll do a, a good job in the future. But like I said, it was such a difficult time, a unique time, that you can't really. Uh, no one really know what to do apart from sitting the exam, which is the obvious way any other alternative is, is always going to have uh, trouble and was always going to end up being um, a mistake. Uh, but on that, on that point, uh, Tom, uh, you know, talking about uh, other people in the union uh, resigning uh, in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, um, looking at uh, Keir Starmer, who's wrote an wrote a interesting article for the, the Daily Mail, which led to a very interesting and quite comedic hashtag on Twitter, hashtag Starmer out from the socialists uh, in the country. Um, do you think that was a bit over the top? Uh, and also, do you think, you know, Starmer not condemning the Welsh government, but condemning the English, uh, condemning uh, Westminster and the Conservatives? Do you think that's uh, a bit of hypocrisy coming from the leader of the opposition? Oh, it's total hypocrisy. I mean, the idea that he just has not addressed even his own party doing exactly the same thing that he's accused the government of the UK of having gross incompetency over is just obviously silly. But I think both of the issues you raise, both the Daily Mail article and that lack of consistency speak to how agile he is as a politician. Keir Starmer knows that the vast majority of people that he's trying to reach in England have no idea that Wales is run by Labour, have no idea that there's a Lib Dem education secretary, and that have no idea that that country has had the same mess that this country has had when it comes to exams. And I think that so often, whether it's to do with the NHS or education or anything else, the lack of understanding from most people in this country about devolution settlement has played massively into the Labour Party's hands. And it's a big shame because of the sort of unequal devolution we have across this country, why, why would anyone bother to know how a distant part of the country that you perhaps have never been to or have only fleetingly visited, um, how, how that's run? Like, it, it makes no sense. Why would, you, why would you bother taking time out of your day to learn that? So yes, the Labour Party has massively taken advantage of general ignorance over that um, and has been able to make hay out of it. But also, he's been much more clever than previous Labour leaders in absolutely recognising how little screeching uh, Twitter warriors actually matter when it comes to the general democratic process. Yes, you can have a few thousand people make something trend on Twitter, but that is a tiny, minuscule, uh, insignificant number when it comes to electoral politics. I mean, if we think about some of the um, electoral events in the last few years, Tommy Robinson stood in the northwest of England and got tens of thousands of votes. Now, if all those people had Twitter accounts, they would dominate all of the hashtags every day of every week of, of, across the year. Would that change a jot about what happens in electoral politics? No, they're insignificant. They're radical. They're extreme. Um, and, they and they shouldn't be listened to. And exactly the same thing applies to the hard left, except they all know how to use computers. Yeah, I think I, I agree in, uh, that Keir Starmer should have been stronger in criticising, you know, uh, Labour in Wales, but I can see why he hasn't done that. But equally, I, I, would def I definitely want to praise him for I mean, obviously, because I support Labour, I'm obviously going to praise him for criticising the government on this topic. Uh, and I would also praise him as well for writing this article in the Daily Mail. I think it's a good idea to write publications that you don't necessarily believe in to try and appeal to more people, hopefully get more people to support. And I completely disagree with people who are, you know, tweeting Starmer out and things like that. I feel like we see what we saw from the result of the previous election, how Labour's inability to appeal to people in a lot of the constituencies that they lost was part of the reason why, you know, they lost the whole election, you know, well, a large part of the reason, obviously. Uh, so I think the best way, it's a good thing that Keir Starmer's doing if he's trying to appeal to more people by writing in the Daily Mail. And I think a hashtag like that is, is stupid. But equally, as you say, doesn't make that much of a difference. It's, you know, 
just a stupid mm -hmm. thing to do. Yeah, I think that it's sort of tricky in terms of which way you perceive, you know, Starmer writing in the Daily Mail. I think that, you know, on the one hand, it's good to sort of reach outside of the base of support and have people who are viewing, you know, what would predominantly be right-wing content, having to look at uh, another perspective. But then, at the other side, although obviously I think Starmer out, hashtag like Tom rightly points out, is completely absurd and probably only by a minuscule amount of the actual electorate. But I think that the criticism for writing in the Daily Mail could potentially be slightly more valid in the sense that, you know, there are lots of things that, um, you know, basically lots of ways in which the Daily Mail acts as an outlet that are quite unacceptable in the past. I mean, even earlier today, I think I was seeing how the comment section is just flooded with people who were even celebrating the death of a refugee who didn't make it to Britain on one of the boats. I think it's disgraceful. And you can point to many of the articles that they've published in the past and that kind of thing. So I think that people are taking an issue with the leader of the Labour Party validating, um, in to some extent, that platform. Um, both, you know, it's fair in the sense that it's something that's morally wrong, but also, you know, does it validate an outlet that basically spreads things that are to the detriment of the Labour Party anyway? I think that's another reasonable point. But with Starmer more generally, he's obviously done a, a reasonable job of bringing Labour back into the mainstream a lot more and taking a hard line on anti-Semitism, uh, amongst other things, and being probably a much stronger opposition than Corbyn has. We've already mentioned the U-turns that have been made, obviously not entirely because of his opposition, but he certainly has been stronger in things like PMQs and in challenging the government. So I think that there are a lot of positives of uh, Stalin's leadership as well. See, that's where I disagree with you, Starmer has um, repeatedly messed up and i think this is and this is a big big mistake he's done by not condemning the welsh government uh you can't just say the the west uh, the conservatives in westminster have done an appalling job and then say the labor uh in the senate have done have done well not say anything at all you can't do that and and that shows that i know that the welsh government are on very very thin lines at the moment and they're on the verge of losing uh their power in in the senate come next year's election and I think that's why he doesn't want to condemn them to make them lose any more influence and power that they already have. However, you know, Starmer, when you're saying all this stuff, you know, this, this Starmer out hashtag, it's ridiculous to start the thing. He's the best chance that Labour have of bringing down, well, getting down an 80-seat majority, even though that's never going to happen in the generation. But like I said, he's, he's done a, he's, there's no reason for that hashtag. And it just shows the, the division inside the, um, Inside the in Labour Party right now, where the so diehard socialists, the diehard Corbynistas, uh, still can't get over that they were embarrassed in December, and that they've even been even more embarrassed that Keir Starmer came their leader, and rather than Rebecca Long Bailey, and I just think that's it's absolutely ridiculous. From them. and it just shows that they are still in turmoil. No matter who they put in charge, there's a party still in turmoil, and I'm sure Tom will agree with me on that one. That it is a party which is not going to win an election for another 10, 15 years. Well, yeah, it is remarkable that despite everything that we've seen, you know, this enormous pandemic, the, the agenda of this government completely uprooted, had to be reset. I mean, just about everything that could have gone wrong externally from the government has gone wrong and happened. Um, and yet the Labour Party in every single poll is still behind. Now, of course, they've closed the gap to some degree, but the idea that we're almost a year into, um, well, we're more than a year into the premiership of Boris Johnson now, and the Labour Party still hasn't managed to inch ahead at any point, I think is quite telling. Um, but I, I, would, I would just pick up on that point about the Daily Mail not being an adequate, or, or the Mail on Sunday, actually, I should say, a different paper um, endorsed Remain at the general, at the, uh, in the uh, referendum. Um, Actually, more, more Labour voters read the Daily Mail than read the Guardian. That's just because it's a much more read newspaper than the Guardian is. The Guardian circulation is around 95,000, I think, slightly less. Um, and yet, and the circulation of the Mail and the Mail on Sunday, much, much higher. So just speaking in pure electoral terms, if you're going to reach the audience that you need to reach to turn people over to your side, that's exactly where he should be. I mean, as someone who's more inclined to support the Tories, I wish he, would, you know, I wish he hadn't. Uh, I'm supportive of the Corbynistas on that front. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's a much more formidable opponent for the Conservatives than anything that they've faced for a long time. However, that being said, I think he's formidable in the same way that Neil Kinnock was formidable. I think he's probably going to see uh, 
1987 or at the most a 1992 uh, swing round if everything goes his way. I'm not, I'm not sure that he's going to be able to pull off that sort of, he doesn't have that amazing enigmatic quality that someone like Tony Blair did. I don't think he's quite got, I mean, if you close your eyes and you listen to the man, he just sounds like Ed Miliband. He sounds pretty weedy, pretty nasally. And I know that's an incredibly superficial analysis, but I think it's something that does matter. Mm. I absolutely agree. Oli, do you want to come back on that? Yeah, I do actually think that, you know, I, I disagree with the analysis that it's entirely an unwinnable election the next election. I think there's a couple of things to bear in mind. I think, firstly, let's just remember just how long the Conservatives will have been in power for. I think you're right. In the same, you know, I think that how long a party's been in power for and how many seats the majority is are in some ways comparable in terms of, like, how much they actually influence <laughs> in the sense that, in literal terms, they don't, but there's a history as to how much like there's going to be a swing. And I think that when a party's been in power for such a long time, naturally, you know, you do seem to have moves towards an appetite for change. I think that Starmer is fundamentally far more electable than Corbyn. You know, there's not going to be the hashtag never Corbyn. Um, you know, there's not going to be that same thing. And I think that with five years of changing the Labour Party to make it more electable, I think that he definitely will have a chance. This is also the same British government, you know, under Boris Johnson, that ultimately has been disastrous um, in terms of its managing of coronavirus, certainly at the start, even though I would say that it's got slightly better as time has gone on. And, you know, you mentioned how many U-turns there's been uh, for such an early time in the Premiership. I'd actually say that that's probably because of how badly they've got the decisions. You mentioned the shambles uh, quite rightly on the A-levels U-turn. Let's also not forget the shambles on the free school meals. That was a complete disaster. And they, you know, the reason they made a, a U-turn wasn't because they had to with the majority. It was because of just how terrible a decision it was to make. So I think the idea that this Boris Johnson government is, you know, completely infallible and that it's definitely going to win the election, I, I don't think it's true. I think that, um, you know, Starmer with years of being the Labour Party leader moving to that much more electable stance i think that actually they've got a very reasonable chance against what is ultimately reasonably weak government with a reasonably weak you know way of making decisions um i uh, see see other says I, i'm gonna have to disagree with you again on this i mean we agree we disagree on pretty much everything uh, on this podcast as our listeners will know but um it to say that to say that Starmer is going to win, and this is and this week uh, his responses has shown what he is as a leader. He doesn't come up with alternatives; he just comes up with criticism, and that isn't a way of leading an opposition. Uh, this is a guy who's not out there; who's, a, who's got a personality of a damp rag. He's like Tom says; he's very much. You close your eyes and you think of Ed Miliband, and he's not for me. Yes, he's more electable than Jeremy Corbyn based on principles and and, po and policies, wherever those policies will be. We we don't we know he's not a diehard socialist, and we know that he's going to be more towards the centre left. However, I just can't see him overturning an eighty majority against a Conservative government that has got yes, it's it's handled uh, the coronavirus reasonably poorly, and it's you know made a mistake on the on the exams as well. But I still can't see an 80 majority being overturned by a relatively still a weak opposition that has been divided on from center left to the far left. Uh, Corbyn's still holding a very large amount of authority and influence in the party. Uh, and will Stan be able to get those people on side? I'm not too sure. I still think there could be a, a split in the party if uh, Starmer doesn't uh, appeal to this far left side, who based on the hashtag Starmer out, uh, show that they're, they're, they're not on side. And, and that was trending uh, at number one for all day. And that is a, you know, and that shows that he's not, you know, as popular as everyone thinks he is. I just think that, um, start, that an ATC majority will not get overturned in the next election. And that's been shown quite evidently by Starmer this week. Um, but sorry, quickly come in on one thing um, that both you and Tom have mentioned, this whole idea that he's boring and he can't win the election, you know, because, uh, you know, say he's got no personality. Now, don't get me wrong, if I was to design my ideal politician, my ideal prime ministerial candidate, I would absolutely pick someone who's extremely charismatic and a fantastic public speaker. But let's not forget, Theresa May still managed to, you know, win an election and get into government. We have just... Yeah, of yes. I mean, I wouldn't say she won an election, to be honest. I mean, she came out with a minority government. I'm not saying that it's perfect, but I think, and you know, and you've had plenty of other, you know, of course, you know, someone like Blair, 
was much more charismatic and there was much more enthusiasm around them. But of course, John Major, uh, you know, was a somewhat reasonably successful prime minister. And I think that the idea that just because he's boring, which I don't entirely accept, just because he's basically not someone who's the most charismatic leader in the world means that he has no chance against a government that has failed on a number of issues and made use of on a number of key issues. I just don't accept that analysis. I, I don't think that it's something that's reasonable and I think that he does stand a reasonable chance. Right. Uh, well, th thanks, Vardy. Um, moving on. Uh, firstly, I just would say, Tom, it's, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. Um, we know a lot of our listeners follow you on Twitter, uh, you know, uh, read your articles and, and watch you uh, on TV and they they've asked us, most people have asked us to get, try and get you on the podcast. That's why we, we reached out to you. So it is really fantastic to have you on. Um, and we just got a, uh, just a, a few questions that we want to ask you that our, our listeners really want to know. So we've, I, I asked them what they wanted to hear you say and things like that. And they just want to ask you about what your current, uh, overall, we've spoken about the Conservative government uh, in terms of the U-turns, things like that. But in terms of, you know, Brexit and coronavirus, how, what do you make of this current Conservative government and sort of the impact that Boris Johnson has made uh, in his year as Prime Minister? I think we've really got to divide it into two parts. So um, I don't know if, if you watched the Greenwich speech that was made around the end of February. Um, now, this was, I think, literally the best speech that any prime minister had made since Margaret Thatcher. It, it slashed out at the, at the mercantilists, he actually used that word, about people trying to put up barriers to trade, both in Beijing and in Paris and actually in Washington DC as well. He spoke about how we should be unleashing the power of the market, how we should be building more homes. He was saying, he was basically providing uh, an, an incredibly inspiring manifesto and that was just about getting off the ground and then boom, covid hit and everything seemed to get frozen and changed and suddenly we're going from somewhere where we're, we're keeping within fiscal rules to just completely abandoning them we've um, surpassed 100 percent of gdp in debt i mean the, the situation of the country is now dire um, and it seems that we've exposed an incredible weakness in the round um, the quangos of this country i think public health england in particular but also a lot of scientific um, bodies and i mean we all know about the electoral commission as well i mean it seems that all of these bodies that are adjacent to politics that were dreamt up mostly in the blair eras to in, in the blair era in order to um, sort of get blame away from elected politicians and say oh no this is the fault of this administrative body i think that that has been exposed to be an incredibly poor model that rightly needs reform but the thing is just about every single aspect of the state right now needs reform um and in the middle of a crisis it needs reform and so it seems like everything that that was going in the right direction just hit a brick wall and we have subsequently seen some very um, irritating nannying from this government whether it's um, banning adverts that feature pesto and hummus and all the other <laughs> high in salt and, and fructose or whatever um, definition they've given to junk food because it turns out there isn't a, uh, a medical or, or indeed a, a food definition for a newspaper term, who'd have thought. Um, th there seems to be a lot of things that this government is doing now that wasn't really in their raising debt before COVID struck. And I'd like to see some returning to that zeal of the Greenwich speech. One area that they've done that actually is housing. And I've been very, very impressed with what Robert Jenrick's been doing in the last few months. Despite COVID, we have had presented to us like the most fundamental reform of the 1947 Town and Country Banning Act, like a completely new way in which we can build houses and bring prices down. Uh, that I think is going to be the most significant piece of um, action that the government has brought forward, or at least white paper that the government has brought forward um, in the last six months. And if they do more stuff like that, then I'll be much more, I'll be much more of a happy camper than I've been for the last few months. Mm. Uh, and so going on to um you know uh, the government's response to to brexit uh, do you think that the trade deal which supposedly you know, stalled over the past couple of months of obviously because of coronavirus uh, do you think that the government's sort of the the way of going about the trade negotiation i think it's the right way to do it uh, as a government i personally think it's 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 the right way we shouldn't be held to ransom but what do you think of that 
Yeah, I mean, they have to be, there's no way that you're going to be able to get a deal if you're going to say, oh, yeah, we're going to continually delay. Having that clear uh, and believable idea that this is the line in the sand, we will not cross it. And by the way, this is our proposal for the deal, which we have plucked and almost copied and pasted from all the other different deals that the EU has already done. What um, David Frost did when he, when he went across to um, Brussels for the first time, um, this is just before uh, the lockdowns, I think, if I'm remembering rightly, um, the UK presented its uh, proposal for the basis of an FTA. And it literally was full of sections. I don't think they wrote a word of it. It was copied and pasted from the Canadian deal, the Japan deal, the aborted TTIP deal, um, and, and a couple of others. I think the Singapore, um, I think the, um, the Safria deal as well. So these, this is, there was nothing new, nothing fancy in these proposals. So it's really, really clear. All of the areas where the where the EU is sort of digging in and saying no, the British side can just point to it and said, well, why can't we agree to that when you've agreed to it with this other country? So it does make the EU look more intransigent, look more political and look less sensible and level-headed. And I think that's exactly the way to achieve the deal that I think everyone wants to see. Um, but also having that parliamentary bolstering, having um, 365 MPs who were all elected on a manifesto of, of that strong Brexit stance. Um, I think the EU is going to take note of that, even though inevitably, as we near the end of negotiations all the time, that's when the heat gets the highest and the noise gets the loudest and everyone seems to think, oh, where on earth is this going? That always happens in the final few months in any deal. It doesn't just have to be a trade deal. I mean, we'll all remember the, the back in the EU council summits when um, prime ministers used to go and sort of stay up until the late of night and everyone thought, well, where on earth is this going? You know, in the morning they'd walk out with some sort of agreement. You all, it always gets darkest before the dawn and I really believe there's going to be an agreement that is reached. I think that's the way that anyone who is sensible um, on either side would, would want to happen. But it does mean the EU is going to have to recognise that they can't continue to treat the UK as if it's in its little sphere of influence, as if it's its protectorate that has to follow its laws. It needs to treat the UK like it treats Japan or Canada. Mm. And yeah, no, I completely 100% agree with you. We have, can't be held to ransom and we've got to be treated with respect as a, as a new independent nation. Um, but moving on to uh, your opinions on uh, Boris Johnson, you, you've said um, uh, on record that you said that Boris Johnson is, is the right leader. Uh, do you think that go, heading into, you know, we've got a long way to go to a next election, but do you think heading into a next election that uh, Boris Johnson is the right person to lead the Conservative Party after everything that's gone on uh, this year? Yeah, I, I would say so. I think the, the only obvious successor right now would be someone like Rishi, who um, is, is certainly not quite ready for the top job yet, but also is about to become a lot more unpopular than he currently is. I think there's this tendency within the parliamentary party for Conservative MPs to latch on to the person of the moment to say, oh, you happen to be particularly popular at this moment in time. Well, yes, Rishi is incredibly popular right now because he's just given everyone 50% off their meals half the week and splurged untold billions on letting everyone get money for not working. Of course, the man's popular. But as soon as we see more of the economic fallout of what's happened, and we're starting to see that now, I mean, I'm hearing every single day thousands and thousands of jobs being cut from just about every business imaginable. We are entering a really tough economic time and chancellors don't tend to do well when we go through tough economic times. So I'm not sure there's an obvious successor for Boris, but also if he can reignite that passion of that Greenwich speech. Actually, do you know what? I've spoken about it so much now. I'm going to go back and rewatch it, I think, this week. <laughs> I mean, um, yes. I mean, we'll, we'll put a link in for our listeners because, we, I mean, I personally have I've seen it. I thought it was a fantastic speech. Um, but yeah, it is. It's a, it's a wonderful speech and it's, it just sums up Boris and his, and his character and, and who he actually is as a, as a politician. 
and I think a little bit of that got lost during COVID. I mean, obviously, he got a bit scared during, I mean, he, he had a big scare with regard to being put in an ICU and coming close to death off the back of COVID. And I think that's made him a bit more nannying. I think that's made him a bit more gung-ho about the use of state intervention when it comes to things like health. And I just worry if that's a tendency that this government is going to pick up and go forward with, that is a very worrying tendency um, and not something that I'd be supportive of of at all. So it really depends. I think it's so impossible to make forecasts four years out when we're in the middle of such an unprecedented crisis uh, as this one. So um, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to completely wimp out and duck that question entirely. No, don't worry. Um, and we've got one of our uh, listeners who li- loves listens to every episode of the podcast and he said that he's when, I, when we put on that you, you were coming on the podcast, he reached out and said if he could ask a question. Uh, ben, his name is. Um, and he, he said his favourite moment of yours was when you cor- correctly predicted the outcome of Boris winning the leadership election to going into the Brexit negotiations and then the general election, uh, which you correctly predicted twice. And uh, he just wants to ask, what's it like to be a political journalist and especially appearing on BBC Question Time? Hi, Ben. Um, it's, it's, I guess it's fun. Um, I think I think the big thing I was really really lucky appearing on Question Time because I've done Any Questions the year before the radio version, and I went into my Any Questions um, gig with um, with a load of notes. I had loads of paper in front of me. I'd written stuff out that I thought I wanted to say and squeeze in, um, and and then. I, I got there and sort of started doing more reading than I was talking and, and it was not one of my finer performances. So having had that practice of live audience stuff, because most people who do TV, we're literally in a room with maybe six people maximum, a couple of camera people, uh, a couple of presenters or, or, or journalists. I mean, you're not used, to, it's a very different dynamic when you're in front of the live audience. Um, and so I literally didn't take in a single thing that was written down with me. I, I went in sort of having some ideas of what was in the news, but broadly preparing less. And it seemed to go better because of it. Um, <laughs> so I think that that, that, was a, that was a helpful thing. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like it's, it's, it's sort of, I, th- I think the big thing is not taking it all too seriously because ultimately very often, so something like the Newsnight prediction thing, it's a bit of a silly game. We all know we're not going to get it completely spot on. I think I said the DUP would vote for the deal in the end, which was, which was incorrect. Um, but, but broadly I got the correct thrust of it, which was closer than the other three journalists there. So I was, I was quite pleased. Um, but obviously it's a bit of a silly bit. And so you're, you're not supposed to go in there sort of stony faced with, with a clipboard and you know try and try and be the dullest person there it's a bit of infotainment I think they I think they call it so yeah just sort of being able to be a bit jolly have a bit of fun with it but also um, put across your point in a personable way I think is the is the fun thing to do and and sadly um, they don't provide I think the first time I did I did Newsnight there was alcohol in the green room the second time I did it they didn't have any at all there it was just coffee and tea I was really disappointed oh. was, was Andrew Neil involved the first time <laughs> <laughs> you know I've only done one thing with Andrew Neil ever and that was um, when that was outside um, on on College Green in, in one of those sort of um, gazebos that was erected um, after one of the I think after the second meaningful vote um, and no there was no alcohol there because we were sort of rushed on we were standing there it was dark it was cold I was actually going out to a I was going out to see a musical afterwards um, which I was slightly late for because I had <laughs> to do this BBC two thing um, and um, yeah so sadly there was no alcohol I would have loved to have a bit of a pre-drink um, I think that sort of loosens everything up but sadly not in that occasion and and sadly this week got got cancelled before i ever got an opportunity to go to go on that's one of the shows that i would really have loved to go oh, on great it's a fantastic show it's me Mike Portillo as well <laughs> yeah 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 and then loads of people that i go on to other shows with you know sort of the grace bakeleys of this world um got that opportunity and it's just i it makes me very jealous mm. <laughs> i just just one question from me i mean we've we've reached out to, to this person and we just want to know um because you've had counters with ash sakar i think that's how you pronounce her name um in real life, is she is she a communist? 
<laughs> yes, I think she describes herself as a libertarian communist, oh, which in my view is a total oxymoron. <laughs> but actually, she is one of the nicer ones, sort of in the green room, when we do sky papers or whatever, back when we were allowed in studios um, and allowed in rooms with other people. Um, we used to always have a good chat. Um, and not always about politics or policy, but like about what's going on in life and stuff. And there are lots of people that you'll go on to shows with who generally are not that personable and don't really fancy a chat and sort of sit there so stony faced. But Ash is not one of them. I think she's actually one of the um, nicer and more personable ones, despite her <laughs> less savoury views. Yes. No. Well, I've always I've always wondered what she what she was like in, in things because she comes across on TV as a sort of someone who doesn't really know what she's uh, wanting to believe in policy wise. Uh, but speaking of uh, infotainment, as you said, uh, at the end of each podcast, we love to have a bit of infotainment. And when we reached out to you, we included you in your email. You said you were aghast to hit to um, to lose a fight to Tom Jones in our our game fight night which the listeners absolutely love where we put politicians against celebrities in a fight we just say who's who's going to win uh so tom would you be willing to join us in this week's edition of fight night i would be delighted well here we go so all the simple rules uh it, we're in a pub car park uh and it is gypsy rules so uh, it's just fists only uh, and also on this podcast, we like to say we don't endorse violence on this podcast it's just a bit of fun it's it's hypothetical situation we don't want anyone getting us uh you know, on Twitter and saying that we want to cause a fight between uh, George Osborne and some of that. And that's the first person. First, the first fight is George Osborne versus George Clooney. So Tom, we'll go to you first. Who do you think wins in a fight between George Osborne and George Clooney? Is this fat George Osborne sort of before 2014, before he started running and getting into leadership? No. This or is, is this, is this uh, George Osborne at the peak of his physical fitness just when he thought he was about to run for Tory leader just before Brexit happened. This is this is Chancellor George Osborne. This is George Osborne at his probably his political heights but also his mm. uh, physical worst I'd say. Yeah physical worst then I, I think it's a slam dunk for Clooney who I, who I assume goes to the gym um, which I don't think is something that particularly early George Osborne did when no, he was Chancellor. Not. Yeah absolutely not. Albert who are you going for this one? Osborne or Clooney? It's a tough one. I think that they both, you know, they both both put up a good fight. I think, I think, I think Osborne might come out on top just in the end. I think Clooney's got a couple of years behind him. He might have done a few action films, taken a few injuries over his years. You know, George Clooney, uh, George Osborne, he's been in the office his whole life. He's got the, you know, he's got the built up strength. So I think Osborne might take this one actually. Odysseus, yeah. what are you going for on this one? I think that the abuse that George Osborne received, you know, and the, the hatred he received as sort of a conservative chancellor through austerity means that he's probably developed quite a hard shell. And yeah. I think that hard shell would see him through against George Clooney. So I'm going for him. You've all guessed right. It's a clear win for George Osborne here. I mean, it's uh, always going to be the former chancellor and, well, the man who messed up student loans uh, is the man who's taken it. The second fight of the evening is Keith Vaz versus Keith Moon, obviously the drummer from The Who. Um, Tom, who's taken this one? Keith Vaz, the man who uh, famously broke the lockdown but didn't get any repercussions as, um, as he should have done. Uh, who's winning this one? Does Keith Vaz have his two rent boys behind him? Who Absolutely, can sort of bring 100%. And, and, I, and I imagine he's sort of off his face on poppers and coke as well. So <laughs> I probably think he's, he's going to just clinch this just because his absolute backup and sort of mad aesthetic. <laughs> Albert, who are you going for on this one? Keith Vaz well, or I Keith think, Moon? Think, think on that both, logic. I think both of them would be on some sort of substance, to be honest, uh, based, on their, based on their history. But I, um, I have to agree, I think that Keith Vaz particularly with the backing, you know, and, and he, even if, you know, even if you lost the fight, he'd still be able to claim he did, you know, he wouldn't face any repercussions for that. Yeah. Also, uh, if he got, if he got any sort of blood on his clothes, he'd be able to put them in his industrial washing machines, um, <laughs> which would be very good. Um, yes. I'll just say, is he going for Keith Vaz or Keith Moon? Well, you know, I think what, what can you say that hasn't already been said? I think that Keith Vaz, he's fought off many a scandal in the past and I think he'll fight off Keith Moon as well. So I'd go for him. <laughs> well, they had the correct answer there obviously is Keith Vaz and it goes down to Tom's logic there. He'll have the Rent Boys and the Poppers uh, on his side and somehow Keith Vaz, well, not somehow, I mean, he'd have three against one, which he's sometimes used to. Um, <laughs> uh, go, moving on, Neil Kinnock versus Neil Diamond. See Neil Kinnock, another person who broke lockdown rules but didn't face any repercussions. Um, versus Neil Diamond, and he does have Caroline behind him. 
So just on the basis that Neil Kinnock managed to fall over on a likely windy beach, um, I think I'm going to have to hand this one to Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond. Albert Jennings, who's going taking this one? Oh, that's, that, that's a tough one. Um, but, I mean, Neil Kinnock wasn't able to fight off any Conservative uh, Prime Minister or win any elections, so despite multiple trying. So I think I have to agree. I think I can give it to Neil Diamond this time. Neil Diamond, yep. And Odysseus? Is Sweet Caroline taking the win here? Well, you know, I think that actually maybe Neil Kinnock would take the win. I think that Neil Diamond, you know, just too obsessed with Sweet Caroline, too much of a sweet, you know, not a fighter, too into his sweet things. So I would actually go for Neil Kinnock. Neil Kinnock, well, uh, the answer is Neil Kinnock. No, no, Neil Diamond, I mean, sorry, Neil Diamond. <laughs> not Neil Kinnock, of course not. Um, Neil Diamond takes the win there. So going into the last round, it is uh, Tom 3, Albert 3, Odysseus 2. Um, so into the last one. And this one, has we've had it before, this one has really the one that got Tom on the podcast. It is Tom Harwood versus Tom Jones <laughs> in a second round. Tom, are you backing yourself in this one? As you I absolutely back myself always and forever. And, <laughs> and Tom Jones is 80 years old. Of course I'm going to win. I'll just have to cough on the man. <laughs> that is fantastic. Um, Albert, who are you going to... In your political career, you, you hoped one day you'd be able to say, I think I could beat Tom Jones in a fight. <laughs> but I think for the sake of the three allness, I think I have to go with Tom Jones just to make it interesting. Tom Jones. Yeah. Um, and... Odysseus. As I said before, it's not unusual for him to win a fight. <laughs> I, actually, I, I think that confidence plays a massive role in fights. I think that Tom Harwood's confidence, having listened to Harvey's tirade against him, is in <laughs> it's shattered. You know, he's not got his mojo, and I think on that basis, Tom Jones knocks him out with one punch. Wow. <laughs> well, I'd, before I say the result, I would firstly like to apologise to Tom for my tirade. Um, I was mainly doing sort of a, a Andrew, Andrew Neil style attack on Boris Johnson, which I thought would work, but it severely backfired on me. Um, and I'm just glad that you're, you're actually here now. But the answer to that one, obviously, is going to be Tom Harwood. I mean, he, he, all it's to say, cough on him and Tom Jones is going down. He's, he's, I mean, if he turns up, he's probably shielding right now. Um, so, I mean, he probably won't be coming out. So on that basis, the winner of this week's fight night is our special guest, Mr. Tom Harwood. Congratulations. Uh, you don't win anything, uh, but you sort of win the, the prize of being able to knock out Tom Jones, which I think is uh, an award in itself. Um, I think I win pride. Um, which I is, think which pride in that one, I think, yeah, it would be embarrassing yeah. if you didn't. I mean, and also, uh, <laughs> and also to be able to slate Keith Vaz as well, uh, it goes a long way. Yeah, um, maybe, maybe I didn't win pride, I just avoided shame. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And on that bombshell, um, that is the end of this week's episode. I'd like to thank Albert and Odysseus as usual, and also uh, our specialist Tom Harwood for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you uh, today. And just before we go, I'd like to say next week, we've got a fantastic guest coming on. We're not going to say it, so we're going to leak it over our social medias over the next couple of days. Uh, but let's just say this person is big in US politics, and they have and is running for US president. So I'll leave you on that one. So I'd like to say thank you to Tom, and goodbye. Thank you.